think I forgot my Bible. I think it's at my seat. Hold on. (laughs) 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 Okay, here we go. It's not a show, remember? Okay. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Guys, so our passage this morning, uh, we're going to be in Philippians, Philippians 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip with me over there. Philippians 2. 12 through 18 is where we're, uh, where we're going today. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start this morning by reading the scriptures. So uh, it says, "Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that it does not return to you void, God, but that it accomplishes the promise or it accomplishes the promises and the purposes for which you send it. And Lord, you tell us that you send it uh, to revive us, to bring light and to li- to bring life into our spirits. And we pray that you would do that for us this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So I want you guys to think with me about what it would have been like to live in the ancient world that Paul was writing this from within really what it would have been like to live in most places of the world before 1879, which was when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Okay, so every night after the sun would go down, whether you lived in the city, whether you lived in the countryside, it would get dark. And there were candles and there were lamps, but you couldn't light up a house that way, much less an entire city. What that means is that the entire pattern and rhythm of human life was totally different. When the sun went down, that was it. Work had to pause, wait, and be put on hold until the next day. And we could talk about the implications of that, which I think are fascinating, for a very long time. Okay, but that is not the point of today's sermon. So we can just push that to the side. We can talk about it later. And we can think about all the things that we would lose in a world without artificial light, but I want you to think about what people would have seen instead. So not not what we would lose, but actually what, what we would gain without artificial light. Because when the sun went down and when the sky wasn't totally obscured by clouds, you would look up and you would see hundreds and thousands of stars set against the night sky. Every night. And instead of watching television at night, people told stories. And these stories were rooted in the stars. Our constellations are a lingering legacy of that reality. So is astrology. And we can imagine why, right? Because every night, people's attention was drawn up to this vast, breathtaking canvas of color of light set off against dark. And every night, people were seeing a scene that was awe-inspiring. It was awesome, and yet it was familiar to them. So it's no wonder that they worked their worship into the story of the stars. 
People named these stars. They knew them. They tracked their rotation. They were familiar enough to them that they were able to navigate by them. And then Paul says this in verse 15. He says to the Philippians, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And the ESV doesn't do a good job of the word picture that's here. It, its translation is you shine as lights in the world. And the NIV says you will shine amongst them like stars in the sky. That's a little bit closer. The word for world here is cosmos. So what Paul is, is saying is that you shine like lights in the ever-expanding universe of God's creation. And Paul is telling his friends, you, you are like those stars in the sky. You are those lights blazing out against this vast expanse. And we read in Psalm 19 that the stars declare the glory of God. This is Psalm 19, verses one through four. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The psalmist is saying that the stars are constantly proclaiming the glory of God. There's no one who can ignore the speech that is pouring forth from the stars, declaring how awesome and how magnificent our God is. And Paul is saying that, that you are one of those stars. That God's work in you is a display of his glory and of his splendor. It says, it says in Ephesians that we are God's handiwork, his poetry, and through us, he's declaring his glory. And as we catch our breath when we see the stars, so seeing God's transformative work in ourselves and in each other should be awe-inspiring and glorious to us. It should make us catch our breaths. In the same way that creation draws us to worship God, so his work in us draws us to worship him. God shines through you like he shines through the stars that he's scattered throughout the universe. And I was really wrestling with that this week. Me? God shines like that through me? And is it hard for you to believe that that is how God is shining through you? I think we often struggle with the ordinariness of our own lives, right? How humble they are in their actual day-to-day execution, in the grind of the work week of all the responsibilities that we're trying to fulfill. And then we compare ourselves to people who we don't think have like the grind of everyday life, right? That's why People Magazine exists. And don't pretend like you're above it, okay? I know that when you're checking out at the grocery store, you read the headlines just like I do, right? People make money by like by following the stars. Isn't that interesting? Just that that's like the same word that we use for them? The stars. That we're kind of sucked in by their glory. And People Magazine kind of makes its money by showing us their glory, but by also showing us like celebrities. They're just like us, you know? Oh, cool. Okay, maybe you don't read people. But guys, the New York Times does the same thing. Instead of, just instead of calling people stars, they call them luminaries. So they just make the word a little bit longer, right? Yes. 
They hold up the luminaries of our time. It says, these are the people you should follow to, that you should listen to. They've got it figured out. Look at their glory. And of course, Christian subculture has its own way of working those things out, right? We have our own Christian celebrities. Like we were watching this video this week, a uh, flashback in, in our house, of this Australian motivational speaker who is a Christian and does not have any arms or legs. And he came to my church as a kid and it was like, wow, that is the glory of God, right? Someone who has like been through so much suffering and yet is talking here about the love of Jesus in his life. And we can look at that and we're like, well, that is like, that's where the glory is. But in my everyday Christian life, is there glory here? And what Paul is saying in this passage is yes. That in the humility and the everydayness of your circumstances, God is working for his glory. Once we studied in the verses that preceded this in, in the passage that we were in last week, that it's the, through the humility of Christ that Christ was glorified. And that it's the, in the humility of our everyday lives that God is glorified. That's such an important reality for us to hold on to as we kind of trudge through the everyday nature of our own lives. And I would encourage you guys, we're, uh, this, last, this coming week is the last week of our discipleship groups for this semester. Man, this is a great opportunity for you to slow down and to, to pay some t- take some time to pay attention to the work that God has been doing in your life and in the lives of the people around you. Would you do that this week? Would you stop and ask the Lord, Lord, would you show me the ways that you are displaying your glory through the people who are right around me? Would you show me how you're doing that in me? And then would you do this thing that we talk about a lot, but we so rarely do, would you actually tell that to the people uh, that you see that in? Like, would you write them a letter or a note or pull them aside and tell them face-to-face, hey, this is what I have seen God doing in your life, and it's glorious? Because we need those reminders, don't we? That God is at work. That's, that's the place that we are not only experience the glory of God, but the joy of our God. And what Paul's doing in this passage is he's, again, like he's been doing throughout this whole book, he's driving us toward, we'll try it one more time, okay. As he's doing, he's doing in this passage what he's doing throughout this entire book is he's driving us toward? Joy, Joy, that's right, okay. That he wants us to see and participate in and know the glory of God that's all around us, that's in us and in each other. That's what he's tuning us into here. And so we're gonna talk about how is it that we display this glory of God and participate in this joy? What is it that, that stops our joy or helps us or obscures the glory of God in our lives? We're gonna talk about those things. But just we have to acknowledge and we have to see first that the scripture is telling us that the glory of God is at work in you. And one of the best ways that we can love each other is reminding each other of the fact that that's true. So the glory of God is in us and it's at, it's at work in us. And let's talk about then what Paul has to say about how it is that we shine. How do we shine forth this glory that God has put in us? And Jesus actually addresses a very similar topic in Matthew 5. He basically gives the same sermon, but in classic Jesus form, he just gives it in two verses where it takes Paul who knows how many verses to spell it all out. Okay, so this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is telling us, this is how you let your light shine, is that you walk in good works. And that through that, people will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Paul is calling us to a very similar reality, right? Just, just like Jesus is. Jesus is saying, you are a light. That's true about you. Now go and live that out. Paul is saying the same thing. He says this in verse 15 of the passage that we're in today. He says that you may be blameless and innocent. That's already true about you. You, because of the work of Christ, are blameless. the verdict about you has already been declared that one day when you stand before the judgment seat of God, God will render a verdict on your life. And what Paul is saying is that verdict is already in and that verdict is you are innocent because of what Christ has done for you. That you are a child of God. That you are without blemish. Those are the things that are true about you. And what Paul is calling us to in this passage is he's saying now live out of what is true about you. Work those things out to the surface. And to use Jesus' metaphor, to not live out that reality is to hide our light, to put it under a bushel. No, right? <laughs> that, okay, I couldn't help it. <laughs> if you don't know, that's the song, This Little Light of Mine. I won't sing it to you because that would be torturous, but okay. So he's encouraging us, live out of who you are. Another word for that, guys, is obedience, Right? That's what Paul says in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's saying, hey, even though I'm not there, still obey. Continue to work out in your life what is already true about you. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, whoa, work out our own salvation. Is Paul changing course here? I thought Paul said that we were saved because of what Jesus did, not because of what we did. Okay. That's true. But like we've talked about a few times is that when Paul uses the word salvation, he sometimes uses it in different ways. So sometimes when Paul uses the word salvation, he means the once and for all accomplishment of our salvation that, that was worked for us when Jesus Christ was, was crucified and was resurrected. And that once and for all, there's been a verdict declared over our life when we trust in Christ that we've been made innocent, right? So there's this once and for all nature to our salvation. But then Paul also uses salvation in a different way. And he says your salvation is also ongoing. That when Jesus saves you, he doesn't just save you uh, in that confession of faith, but he saves you and promises he's gonna work in you. And that work in you is a work that we work alongside. That's our sanctification, right? As we become more and more like Jesus. And so our salvation is this thing that we are given and it's a thing that continues to be at work in us. It's an ongoing thing. And then Paul actually also refers to salvation in a third way, that there's this moment when before Christ we will stand before God complete. And that that moment where we stand before God complete is also the culmination of our salvation. It's our glorification. And so that whole process from beginning to end, from the moment that we're declared righteous to all of the working out of our salvation to when we stand before God complete in glory, that whole thing is our salvation. And so Paul sometimes uses the word to refer to different parts of that. 
So today, in the text that we're in, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's referring to that, that second kind of perspective on our salvation, which is the ongoing nature of us being made more and more like Jesus. And he encourages us in that. He says, be obedient. Let what is true about you work itself out in your everyday lives, in your obedience. And, and we gotta pay attention to this phrase. He says to do it with fear and trembling. That's kind of weird, right? Kind of catches off, uh, us off guard a little bit. It's not usually how we think about our faith. I think part of that is because we often think about obedience as this optional part of our faith. Like, oh, well, we're grace people, you know? And our obedience is always kind of flawed and we're always just kind of doing our best and so we're full of sin, so like, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Okay, that's not Paul's perspective at all. Paul says our obedience matters. It's the way that our salvation works itself out in our lives. It's how we shine. And so he says, do this with fear and trembling, friends, because it is an awesome responsibility. It's an awesome gift that you have been given. And so that fear and trembling then, it comes from a sense of awe before the greatness of God, not some kind of insecurity before God. It's not wondering if God is good or if he's for us that would make us afraid, but it's a kind of fear and a trembling that comes from acknowledging the bigness and the awesomeness of the God who has called us into this work of obedience in our lives. Jeremiah, man, we're just jumping all over today, so you can write this down. You can come back to this passage later if you want. We're gonna be in, just read Jeremiah 33, verse nine. Jeremiah 33, verse nine. And it speaks to this idea of fear and trembling. So this is God talking through the prophet Jeremiah about what he's gonna do for the city of Jerusalem, for his people, okay? This is, what, this is what God is saying about his people. It says, and this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth. You recognize some similar themes here? The city, God's people, shall be to him a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I will provide for it. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I will provide for it. That we would actually, this fear and trembling is connected to the goodness and the character of God toward us. that we are called to obedience in light of the tremendous grace and mercy that God has lavished upon us. A grace and mercy that are so far beyond what we can comprehend that it overwhelms us and it makes us tremble in awe of the goodness of our God. Like, have you ever experienced the kind of goodness that takes your breath away? Like, maybe a generosity that's far beyond what you can imagine that's so big that it, that it makes you tremble? And Paul says to work out your salvation, to learn to be obedient out of, out of our awe of the goodness of our God toward us. Look at verse 13. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is, that's such an assurance in light of this call to work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling that what that verse tells us is that our God is more dedicated to us looking more like Jesus than we are. 
that he is committed to doing a work in you. God is committed to that. And he's not just committed to it out of obligation. He's committed to it because it is his great delight and pleasure to work in you. So God hasn't just saved you, accomplished your salvation, and said, okay, well, good luck over here on this obedience thing. You know, like, you know, let me give you a pep talk, kind of pat you on the back on your way out of the locker room, and I, I, hope, you, I hope you do a great job out there today on the field. I really sound like a coach, huh? Wow. It's been a long time. Okay. <laughs> That's not what God does. That God actually promises, yes, I have accomplished your salvation for you, and I'm working in and through you to accomplish making you more like my son. God is dedicated to that work in our lives. He says, I'm doing it with you. And so this work of obedience then isn't us trying to please some kind of distant father as we anxiously wonder, are we getting your approval or not? No, this is about us working alongside our God who says, I delight to walk with you in this. It's a journey of intimacy. a game changer because our God is already pleased with us and because of that he's pleased to continue to work in us and Paul says that kind of obedience is an obedience that creates a contrast with our world that's why he says in verse 15 that you'll be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that stars shine in the midst of darkness, right? And that's true for our humble obedience. Paul says that it'll shine in the midst of a twisted and a crooked generation. Does that seem offensive to you at all? That that's how Paul would describe our world as, as twisted and crooked? It's a little bit offensive to me. And I think that means that we're kind of getting Paul's point. Paul is saying that because of sin, we are all warped, right? It's like uh, if there's been a, like a huge fire in some kind of industrial facility, right? And those, those buildings are often held up by steel beams, but what happens when the fire gets really hot in those buildings is that the steel beams twist and they crumble under the pressure of the weight that's sitting on top of them. And Paul is saying, that is what sin has done to you and to I. It's like a fire in this huge industrial building and it, and it twists us so that our whole building, our world is collapsed. And we know that the world is a dark place, right? We're finally reckoning with that in our own country in a way. Finally admitting that there's injustice that's been worked into our world in systematic ways. And that's nothing new. As humans, we have a very checkered past, right? To say the least. With all kinds of war and genocide and horrible cruelty. And that's always been true across the expanse of human history. But here's the issue, is that that darkness resides in our systems because that darkness resides in us. And that's what Paul is reminding us of here. These systems of injustice are what happen when people live out of their own truth. Because we're a people who, when left to our own devices, are twisted and crooked. We've been broken by sin and we break other people and things. That ours is a crooked and twisted generation living amongst generations and generations of humans who have been crooked and twisted. And what Paul is not doing here is saying that like everyone who is here in this room, like hey, we are the good people and like the bad people are out there. That is not Paul's point. 
or that everyone who is in Christ is a good person and everyone who is not is a bad person. Paul is saying we are all equal in the fact that we are all twisted and crooked. But that God, through his grace, has sent Jesus Christ into the world to begin the process of setting straight that which has been made crooked. That's one of the ways that Jesus describes his work is he's making paths straight. He's realigning us. He's restoring us to the beauty of how we were created. And to be in Christ is to be part of the beginnings of that work. And so there's always this call to come to Christ, to let him put straight in your life what sin has made crooked and twisted. Come to him. He delights to do that work in you. He wants to do that. And if hearing that God has begun a good work in you makes you uh, smug or arrogant or makes us in this room unbearable moralists, something is very wrong. That perspective is deadly to Christian witness because it comes, fr- it, it comes from this kind of moral triumphalism and superiority that's at odds with true Christian humility and obedience. But what this passage calls us to is to be confident, humble people who are being transformed who can say that anything that is good in us is a result of God's work in us. That it's his glory that we're shining forth. That we, inv- that we can invite other people to come and say, no, come and participate in that. And there's one other thing I want to highlight about this contrast, okay? It's that the way, well, first we have to admit there is a contrast. And that is just hard enough for us to admit, isn't it? And we aren't being called to control the way this contrast is perceived. For some people, the contrast is a turnoff. Okay. For some people, it's attractive. Okay. For most people, it's probably some of both. And sometimes we can get really uncomfortable with a sense of contrast. And we can downplay it. We say things like, well, don't worry. You know, I know we believe totally different things about who God is and what he's done for us, but in every other way, I'm just like you. Everything is totally the same. We're exactly the same, okay? And that's not true. That's okay. I don't have to apologize for that. And yet, we are not called to define ourselves primarily in opposition to the world around us. And we see a lot of that in our world, too. The question is not... the call is not that we would look at our world and say, now how can I be the opposite of that? Right? Again, that's, that's arrogance, that's moralism. No, we're called to be, to be people who shine through the, through the obedience that we are working toward Christ. And the way that that contrast plays, that's not in our control. Okay, so that's how we shine, right? Is in obedience to God. Can we go, let me go back to that last point just for a second. Okay, I think I want to encourage you with something here, and that's, and that's that it's o- it's okay if there are times where you feel like following Jesus makes you feel different than the people who are right around you. This passage would say that that's not telling you that something is wrong. That actually would mean there's something that's that's right about that in the way that you're living your life and following Jesus, and that there's an encouragement for us in this passage. Not let that quite not let that make us question our identity in Christ, but to say that's a part of what it means to follow Jesus and you're not alone in that, that your God is with you in that, he's working in you in that. Okay, so that's how we shine. 
But then Paul goes on to tell us in verse 14 that there's actually a way that we would interfere with this shining in our lives. He says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. What? Does that catch anybody off guard, right? We're like looking for Paul to kind of give us his list of sins, you know, like he does sometimes. And the list that he confronts us with here is grumbling and complaining. That is not the flashy sin that I'm used to talking about. The thing that Paul warns us against is not addiction, it's not, it's not the way we use our sexuality. Paul says, hey, I want to talk to you about your heart and I want to talk to you about grumbling and complaining. I'm like, well, maybe not though, right? I don't know if I want to talk about that. But there's a reason that Paul goes after these things and it's because grumbling and complaining, guys, they're like light pollution. So let me just explain what I mean for a second, okay? Do you, guys, do you know that 80% of the people in the United States on any given night 80% of the people, are unable to see the Milky Way galaxy, okay? So the Milky Way, the galaxy that our Earth spins around in, is able to be seen by the naked eye. But because the lights of our cities and our, the way we do our life in the, in the night is so bright, it blinds us to the, to the galaxy that exists uh, right above us. That's called light pollution. We generate so much artificial light, our world is constantly glowing with it, that we aren't able to see the symphony of God's creation that's spinning right above us. That is what our grumbling and complaining do. They obscure the glory of what God has done in us and done for us. Grumbling are our own form of light pollution. They make it difficult, practically impossible, for us and for others to see God's work. Because grumbling and complaining are what comes, come out of our mouths when we are finding ourselves in opposition to God in our lives. Okay, here's what I mean when I say that. Paul, when he uses these words grumbling and complaining, he's pulling on an Old Testament narrative. And grumbling and complaining in the Old Testament basically becomes synonymous with the word rebellion over the course of Israel's history. Okay, so I know we're jumping around a lot into other passages today, so I'm not gonna flip to Exodus 17, but you can go home and read it. It kind of explains what these words mean. And what has just happened in Exodus 17, okay, is God has just brought his people out of Egypt. So that was a whole trip, right? We could talk about that for a long time. How he did that, that was amazing. At one point, he parts the Red Sea, and the people of Israel walk across dry land uh, in the middle of what was previously very wet land, right? A sea, okay, covered in water. And they walk through it, and then Pharaoh's army goes in to chase them, and the water falls on them, and the people of Israel are delivered. This is amazing. There are songs about it. It's a, it's, it's a huge thing. A, water, a watershed moment. Wow, okay. <laughs> that was not intentional. It just, it's a big moment. So the people are on the other end of this big, miraculous happening, and God is leading his people to this land he's promised to give them. And on their way, they realize, wait a second, we are very thirsty, because we are in a desert and there is no water. Hmm, it's a problem, right? And so the people begin to grumble. And they say to Moses, I love this, they say to Moses, why did you bring us out into this desert to kill us from thirst? Now we could talk about that statement for a long time. Why did you bring us out? Did Moses bring the people out? No, God did. Did God bring his people out into the desert to kill them with thirst? No, he brought them out to do what he promised in Jeremiah 33, which is to show good to his people. But in the midst of their suffering, in, their immediate, in the immediacy of their need and their circumstances, what they have forgotten is God's promise of goodness toward them, and all they see instead is the, the stuff that's right in front of them that's hard and that they're gonna complain about. 
And at the end of that narrative, Moses, spoiler alert, God provides water for the people, okay? So in the middle of the people's grumbling and rebellion, God continues to meet them and provide for them because he loves them, because he's promised to do good for them. But when they leave that place where God has provided water, Moses calls that place Masa and Meribah. And he says that he names it that because the people have asked, is the Lord among us or not? And that really is the question that's in our own hearts when we grumble and complain. That all of our grumbling and complaining is actually against God. Just as the people's grumbling and complaining against Moses was actually about God, that's true about us as well. That we grumble, when we grumble and complain, that we are rebelling against the promise of God that he is doing good for us and that he's present in our circumstances. And let me be clear, okay? Paul is not commanding us to avoid the fact that there is pain in our lives. Paul is not commanding us to ignore the fact that sometimes obedience to Christ brings pain into our lives. Remember, throughout this book, Paul has already acknowledged the very real presence of pain and suffering in his own life. So the problem is not acknowledging our pain. The problem is what we do with our pain. That's, that's what really Paul is getting at here. See, Scripture commands the practice of groaning. It commends it to us. It commands it for us. It says that when we take our pain before God, we can groan before God, that we can tell him, Lord, this is hard. Look what is happening in my life. Scripture even provides us with words for our groaning. It's called the Psalms. It's full of a record of how God's people over time have groaned to him and told him about the pain that's happening in their own lives, the ways that they've called out to him and asked him for help in those places. And those scriptures show us the importance of telling the truth, of acknowledging the pain in our own hearts and then taking that pain before the Lord and allowing him to meet us there. But complaining and grumbling do something totally different. Complaining is a way of avoiding our own hearts. See, when when we grumble, we make our pain about everything that's happening out there rather than about how that's affecting me and what's happening in me. When When I'm grumbling, you become the problem. My boss becomes the problem. My circumstances become the problem. And I can talk about it all I want to other people. If only this were different, then everything would be okay. And when I do that dance, what I'm doing is I'm avoiding my own heart and I'm avoiding taking my own heart and laying it before the Lord and crying out or groaning to him. So groaning is us acknowledging the pain in our lives and bringing it to God. And grumbling takes us around our hearts and away from God. And in doing so, it robs us of joy. And we're reminded of that in the last few, pas- in the last few verses of our passage today. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We've already heard Paul in this, pa- in this book groan about the affliction of his chains. We know that it's hard for Paul. He's not saying that he's too blessed to be stressed, right? That's not the point. Paul has acknowledged his pain, but he's taken that pain before the Lord. And in that place, God has met him and, is, and has comforted him. And now he's able to say to his friends, hey, it's possible for you to experience joy in the midst of your pain. 
And when grumbling and complaining take us around our hearts and away from God, we rob ourselves of the opportunity of experiencing intimacy with God in those things that are pushing pain into our lives. So what do we do with all that? There are going to be a lot of opportunities in the next few months for us to grumble and complain. The last year has been a testimony to that. And as we try to figure out what it means to chart a course out of the last year and a half, there are going to be plenty more of opportunities, for plenty more of plenty more opportunities for grumbling and complaining. Because what I desperately want is to put the last year and a half behind me. Even in preaching just the last two months, guys, honestly, I'm tired of acknowledging how hard the last year and a half have been. I'm like, I don't want to talk about it here anymore. I'm over it. Aren't we all over it already? And to talk about it just reminds me that it's real and I just want to forget it. And what that is, that's, that's going around my heart. And we don't need to do that that actually God wants to meet us in the, in the pain that we're experiencing because of what's happened and because of what it will be like to come out of this last year and a half. But the temptation for us always is to bypass acknowledging that pain before the Lord and to just replace it with complaining and grumbling. There's gonna be a lot of change in the way we do our work lives and the way we do our home lives and the way that we do our church life together because of all of these mandates that are changing and all of that. As we all adjust back to different kinds of schedules, there's gonna be plenty of, plenty of changes there. And taking off our mask isn't gonna fix it. But the call for us, is for us together as a body, is that as we are moving into this this new season, that we would take our groans and that we would lay them at the feet of our Jesus and let him meet us there in humility. And then as we listen to him and then as we walk out of obedience, what he's commanded us to do, that that's actually a place that God wants to shine his glory in, in you and in me and in, our, and in our community together. And the way that we move out of this time united as a body is gonna speak to God's glory and what he's doing here. I think that it's going to be a way that God draws other people to shine for his glory with us uh, in our part of the city here in East Nashville. And you guys, you, you will engage and be a part of that endeavor as you take your groaning to the Lord instead of bypassing it through grumbling and complaining. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful uh, that you sent your son and Jesus, thankful that you came to us uh, without grumbling and complaining, that you loved us enough, Lord, to humble yourself in obedience to the Father, and that through that, Lord, that you uh, began a work in us that you promised that you will carry to completion. Lord, would you open our eyes to the glory of that work as you work it out in us? Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.